Well, hey, we are going to continue our study uh, through the book of Philippians, and we're in this mini-series called Citizens of Heaven. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Today we're going to be covering verses 12 through 16. Uh, Verses 12 through 16 is what we'll be studying today. Uh, If you have some notes, uh, you can follow along there. Uh, But uh, but our our theme verse, before we go to Philippians chapter 2, let's rewind a little bit to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, uh, where we've been anchored in here. Here's where we get this idea of citizens of heaven. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, above all, like, like no matter what happens out there, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself, living a life that's worthy of the good news, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we continue that study through the book of Philippians. Uh, one of the threads that Paul is, is, is streaming together in this section is this idea of unity. He, he's talking about the unity of the church, the importance of that, that we live as united citizens under this banner, under this umbrella of Christ, locking arms together as his church. So let's pick it up in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. The first word we read is, therefore. Therefore, and you guys being good Bible scholars that you are, you know, every time you see the word therefore, what do you do? Well, you got to go back and see what that word is there for, right? And so as we rewind, here's what Paul's talking about. He's saying because of what I've already, or what I've already addressed, because of what we've already learned in light of these realities, therefore, and here's what he's talked about. Here's kind of a recap. If you're new, maybe just jumping back in with us. In Philippians 1.27, he says, hey, in light of your citizenship in heaven, live this way. And in light of you striving to live life in a manner worthy of the gospel, live this way. Because you're standing united with one spirit, one man contending for the faith, because you have encouragement from being united with Christ, because you've experienced comfort from his love, because you have fellowship with the spirit, because you've experienced the mercy of God, his tenderness and compassion, because we're striving to consider others better than ourselves. Because we're not looking out just for our own interest, but we're also looking out for the interest of others. Because we're striving to live with the same attitude that Jesus Christ had while he was here on earth. We talked about that last week. Because of all Jesus has done. Because Jesus is Lord and citizens of heaven are under that lordship. Now, therefore, therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, says I remember when I was with you. I remember, Phil, I remember when I was in Philippi. Like I remember how you obeyed the word of God. I remember how you fought for unity of the church. But now I'm in Rome. Now I'm in prison. Now I can't be present with you. So the best I can do is pin this letter. And now it's even more critical that, that, that you hear me out on this, that you you obey, that you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what in the world's Paul talking about there? Like, is he saying, hey, church, you need to work to like earn your salvation. You need to strive to like be good enough to earn God's favor. Uh, he's not talking about that at all. Matter of fact, this word salvation in the, in the Greek is written in the plural, which is interesting. Uh, he's saying, so it could be salvations. And so he's not just talking to one person. He's, he's talking to us. He's talking to the body of believers. He's talking to the church. 
One thing we learned from the book of Romans is that um, uh, salvation could be broken down into to a couple of things. Uh, one is, is three aspects of it. Normally we think of once you're saved, like that's it, you're done, like you're good to go, right? Uh, but, but Paul, he views salvation in, in a couple of different lenses. First is, is justification. This is what we typically think of when we think of salvation. We're justified by grace through faith, right? And so, so in a moment, like today, if you're not a citizen of heaven, you're not a follower of Jesus today, that can change. Here's how that works. Uh, you, you say, Jesus, my life's not my own. I'm surrendering my life to you. I believe what you did on the cross for me pays my, the penalty for my sin. I believe my sin was dealt with on the cross, past, present, and future. And I believe you rose again. So God, I'm giving you my life. In that moment, you experience what the Bible calls justification. So now you can stand before God justified. Uh, you can stand with confidence uh, when you die, knowing that, that your sins have been dealt with. That's one aspect of, of salvation. That's a beautiful aspect of salvation. Like as far as the east is from the west, so far as your sin transgressions been removed from you, that takes place in a moment. Thank you. But also a part of salvation is, is what scholars call sanctification. Uh, it's this, this progress that we say around here, we're imperfect people in progress. What we're saying there is like, we're, in, we're on this journey of like sanctification. We're not perfect people. I still blow it. I still make mistakes, uh, but, but I'm not who I used to be, right? Like, praise God, I'm not who I used to be. Praise God, I'm not who I will be one day. I'm right in this, this middle and until the day I die, I'm on this. I'm imperfect, but yet I'm in progress of becoming what? Becoming who God says I am. He says, says, before God, you're holy, you're righteous, you're blameless. And because that's true of who you are spiritually, live that out in your life today. That, that could be called sanctification. Paul views that as part of this salvation experience. The third aspect he views is glorification. And so one day when you die, you're going to get a new body. Like, amen, right? Like a body, no more seasonal allergies, no more back pains, no more knee aches. The body won't break down. But more important than that, your body will be able to withstand the glory, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty of the very presence of God. Paul writes it this way. He says, this body of mine will be sown perishable. Like one day I'll be worm food. Like my body will be fertilizer. But praise God, there's going to come a day when that physical body will be rose from the dead. It will rise up and he will give me a brand new body. It indicates that somehow like we'll be able to recognize each other. And so justification by grace through faith. Like, so Paul's not saying, hey, you can work, you can earn your salvation. Matter of fact, he says the opposite of that in Ephesians chapter four. Check this out. He says, uh, let's pull up the verse here. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. So like, how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. Check it out. Salvation's a gift. It's a gift from God, uh, not by work. So you can't earn it. So what Paul's teaching us here in Philippians chapter two is not that you can earn your salvation. In fact, it's the, it's the opposite of that. He says, says we're, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourself so that no one may boast, right? Well, so what does he mean that continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? He's saying, hey, be on this journey together. Like, like when you view others, recognize that they're on this journey with you. So as citizens of heaven, like, like recognize that the people sitting next to you, they're justified by the same grace through faith that you've experienced. We're imperfect people in progress. So when people next to you blow it, don't be surprised by that. They're imperfect, but, but they're in progress, right? It's not about perfection. It is about direction. I'm striving to live a life that pleases the Lord. And when you look around the room today, 
You need to realize that they're going to experience the same glorification that you're going to experience. They're going to get a brand new body. And so what Paul's writing to the church is, hey, you got to work for this, but, but, but view your current reality, view the current reality of the church in light of your, your heavenly reality. Like, like you're going to be together forever, so figure out how to get along now. It's kind of what Paul is, is saying here. That's the spirit of which he's saying, continue to work out your salvation with fear and and with trembling, what does he mean by that? Like, that's pretty, pretty strong words. What he's saying there is that this is very serious. He's saying it's serious the way we conduct ourselves here on earth. It's serious the way we talk about one another. It's serious what we, we say to each other to their face. It's serious what we say about each other behind our backs. Like, it's serious. Paul's saying it's serious. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. One author put it this way. He says, he says to live above with saints we love. Well, that'll be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. And Paul's saying, don't let that be a different story. He's saying, saying live that out. Live that out today. But it takes, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes some intentionality. Um, he says, says you've got to strive for this. And so um, he says, let me back up here. So, so he's saying basically live as citizens of heaven on earth today. And that, part of that is, is working out our differences uh, with each other. Uh, this word uh, work is, is an interesting word. Um, it, it just means you've got to pay attention to it. And he's going to double back on that word. It's actually different meaning in the, this next verse. He says, uh, he says basically what's reality in heaven, let that be a reality on earth. Uh, Jesus said this in the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you've, you're familiar with this. In Matthew uh, 6.10, he says, he says, part of what we pray is, part of our heart is, God, your kingdom come. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and what takes place in heaven? What, what do heavenly citizens conduct themselves as? Well, they're under the authority of the lordship of Jesus. But one of the beautiful things of heaven is there's perfect unity. There's uh, no more gossip. There's no more complaining. There's no more arguing. There's, there's, there's unity there, and that's a beautiful thing. So back to, um, yeah, Philippians 2.12, he says, Therefore, in light of all that God's done, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a serious, serious deal. So how do, we, uh, how do you and I live it is very important. First uh, Corinthians 3.17, Paul writes this. He says, says, if anyone destroys God's temple, check this out, like God will destroy him. Like, that's, that's pretty serious business right there. And here's the deal. Like, you need to know you're the temple. Like, like as citizens of heaven, like, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, whenever you destroy other people, like, whenever you tear other people down with your words, when you, you're walking in disunity, it's a very serious offense uh, to God. For God's temple is holy, and you, you and I, we, we are together that, that temple. The body uh, of Christ is very important. Uh, to God. Uh, the Bible refers to the body as the bride of Christ. And so I don't think Jesus is super pumped about us uh, beating up his bride or tearing down uh, the bride. Uh, I think he's hardwired that into us. Like, so fellas, if you're married, like you, you get this, like people can say stuff about me and like it hurts, like it, it, I'm not going to act like it feels great, but I can recover pretty quick from that. But if people talk about my wife, like, whew, game on. Like, I still remember, I don't even know their name, but like over 10 years ago when she was coaching volleyball, I was sitting in the stands and, and parents were like bashing the coach. And I just turned around, I was like, that's my wife. Like, <laughs> enough. Like, I, 
and I still, even though I say that, my emotions get amped up a little bit. So I'm like, don't, don't talk about my brother. I think God feels that way about his church. I think he feels that way about you. He has your back. And so he invites us to have each other's back in the same way. Uh, verse 12 through 13, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because Jesus cares about the church. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God loves the church, because the church is the bride of Christ. And because it is God who works in you, Paul says, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Like, check this out. Like, God, very God, is at work in you. And check this out. He's also at work in the person sitting next to you. And so be very careful what you say about the way God is working, the timeline in which he's working in, because God's doing He's doing a work. This word work here is an interesting word. It's energia. We get our English word energy from it. It's the idea, every time it's used in the Bible, it's, it's used of uh, God working, speaking to us, energizing us through his word, through, through the Holy Spirit, like God directly energizing, working in people's lives. He's saying, hey, be very careful what you say about other people. Be very careful what you say about the bride of Christ because God is working in them. The literal translation uh, could be this. We have a definition we'll pull up. It's, it's to put one's capacities into operation, to grant one the ability to do. Like, so it's God working in you to grant you the ability to do. To do what? To, to act, to, to do good works according to uh, his plan, according to his purposes for, for your life is what it says in Philippians 2.13. It kind of reminds us of, of Philippians 1.6 where Paul wrote this in chapter one, he says, he says, the God who began a good work in you, he's gonna continue to do a good work in you. And how's he gonna do that? Well, he's energizing you by his Holy Spirit to continue the work that he started. He's energizing you to align your will with his will, to act as he would act, to, to pursue the purposes, to align your life to God's purposes for your life. God's doing a work. And so with that as a backdrop, Paul now, drops it down to a very practical level. Like, how do we live this out today? How do we live this out uh, tomorrow in light of some of those realities? And so here's what he says. In, in, in Philippians 1, 14, 15, and 16, in the original, it's one long sentence. It's like uh, this huge run-on sentence. If you're reading from the NIV, it's a run-on sentence there too. But here's how it starts in verse 14. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Like, like he gets super, like painfully practical. <laughs> Don't complain or argue. Like, like when it comes to your church, no complaining or arguing. When it comes to your spouse, no complaining or arguing. When it comes to your job, when it comes to your boss, when it comes to uh, your house, your car, people around you, situations you're in, do everything. Like this word like is all encompassing. Do everything without complaining or arguing. If you're a citizen of heaven, here's why this is so important. Because uh, the Bible tells us this in Psalm 37, it says the Lord directs the steps of the godly. Like if, if you're a citizen of heaven, you're a follower of Jesus, like God's directing your steps. And so when you complain against your house, you complain against your boss, you complain against whatever situation you may be in, ultimately you're complaining saying, God, I don't think you're directing my steps well. Like, like your, your issue might be with a person, but God, he's orchestrating your steps. Like the Bible says the steps of a righteous person are, are ordered, they're directed by the Lord. And check it out. You're like, well, yeah, I don't know if he cares about all that. But he says he delights in the details of your life. Like the details of your life he cares about. He's directing your steps. And so when we complain, we're ultimately saying, God, I don't think you're doing a great job. Complaining, as you know, and this is why it's such a big deal to Paul. That's why it's such a big deal to us. Uh, complaining spreads, right? 
this spreads like a cancer. And so like if this is our TV in our living room, for me to go home and be like, man, that TV is so old. Like it's got cracks and it's banged up. And next thing you know, Tiffany will be like, that TV is old. You know what? Like it's all dumb. I don't, what, what's wrong with this TV? And then our kids are going to be like, I know we need to get it. I've been saying that for months. So-and-so, he's got a TV five times bigger than ours. And now every time my family sits down to watch TV, we're complaining. We're discontent about what God has entrusted to us, right? That's true for your church. That's true for your marriage. That's true for where you work. That's true for everything in your life. Complaining spreads. That's why it's a big deal. And Paul is trying to address it here. He says, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Now, I thought this was interesting because Paul, he's like this trained rabbi. Like he's a skilled teacher. He was trained at the highest level in Israel. Like, like he's, he's a profound, brilliant mind. And so Paul, what he's doing here is he reaches back to the Old Testament. He, he dips into Deuteronomy and he uses the exact same phrasing to paint a picture of the consequences of, of this behavior. So check this out, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. He, he, says, he says, or 32, verse 5, this is a song of Moses. Moses is talking about what's happened to the nation of Israel uh, as they rebelled against what, what God wanted them to do. He says, he says, they have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Now drop back down to Philippians 2.15. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault. How? In a crooked and depraved generation. Same words used there. Paul's saying, don't be like them. Don't go the course that they went. But, but rather, you go this way. You do this. You, you live in this way. And so Paul uses that, that same verbiage in hopes that it would trigger in the minds of his audience what happened in them. What happened in, in the Exodus? And here's what took place in the Exodus, if you're, you're not familiar with it. Uh, Israel was held in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Over 400 years, they were serving as slaves, being beaten. They, they were experiencing genocide. Pharaoh was like, hey, you're getting too strong. We're going to kill all your, all your kids. Like all the, all the boys are going to uh, get executed. And, and so suddenly, after 400 years, God taps this guy named Moses on the shoulder and says, hey, go set my people free. The time is times now. So, so Moses goes and, and God does 10 plagues, miraculous plagues, supernatural plagues, all in effort to get Pharaoh to, to loosen his grip and to let God's people go. Well, the 10 plague finally is what broke that straw. And, and Pharaoh and all the nation of uh, Egypt are like, get out of here. Like, matter of fact, take our gold, take whatever you want, just leave us alone. And so now uh, Moses is leading, uh, scholars project about 2 million people in the nation of Israel at this time. I mean, babies, elderly, nursing moms, like they, they're all their livestock, everything, all their earthly possessions are now in no man's land, trying to make their way to the promised land. And so, so Pharaoh realizes that his whole, his whole uh, labor force has now just left Egypt. So he's like, what are my kids going to build like pyramids? No, like go get them boys. And so they go to try to get the nation of Israel back. Now the nation of Israel, they're on the brink of the Red Sea. They can see ocean in front of them. They see Pharaoh and chariots coming behind them. And God miraculously splits the sea. And it says that the Israelites crossed the ocean on dry ground, miraculously, supernaturally, unexplainably. 
Pharaoh sees this. And so Pharaoh's like, well, if they can do it, we can too. Let's go, let's go get them. And all of a sudden the walls of the ocean crash down around them. Archaeologists have found like chariot wheels and all kinds of Egyptian armor at the bottom of the Red Sea from the Exodus experience. So now Moses has 2 million people he's trying to lead in this Arabian desert. And so with that as a backdrop, what do they do? Like, how do they respond? At every turn, the nation of Israel is complaining and God is not super excited about it. A matter of days goes by. And here's what we read in Exodus 15, 24. He says, so the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? I mean, the God who like just released them from the world's dominating power. And they're like, I don't know if God can provide us a cup of water. Like, this is crazy. Like, they, he's parted the Red Sea. Like he's crushed their enemies. And now they're like, we just want something to drink. A couple of verses later, chapter 16, verses two, it says in the, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, separate encounters, separate experiences, not the same scenario. They complained against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out to the desert to starve our entire assembly to death. Never mind captivity, never mind being beaten every day, never mind being slave labor, never mind having your kids killed. All they can think about is what's in front of them. All they can think about is their stomach. All they can think about is complaining. And they're not complaining against God, they're complaining against Moses and Aaron. Listen, when we're complaining, we can't see things clearly. So what do we point to? We point to the people in front of us. It's gotta be, it's gotta be their fault. Complain, they complain at every turn. Exodus 17, two through three. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Separate account. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? He's like, hey, I was just watching sheep in the desert and like this bush caught on fire. God said, go. So here I am. Like, why are you mad at me? He says, why do you put the Lord? You're not mad at me. You're mad at God. For why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and there they grumbled, they complained against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make our children and livestock die? Moses is your fault. Again, Numbers 11.1. 1. Now the people complained about their hardship. They complain about everything. They're complaining when they're hungry. They complain when they're thirsty. They complain when life doesn't go the way they want. They complain when they have enemies. God said, hey, here's your land. But he's like, no, there's people. We can't do it. They complain, complain, complain. They complain about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And check this out. When the Lord heard it, his anger was aroused. He's, he's not real big on complaining. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Like he toasted people. Because of what? Complaining. Paul is, is writing in Philippians chapter 3 saying, don't forget what God did. Don't forget how he feels about this behavior. At Numbers 14, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? Here's what's taking place in this, this, this narrative. Uh, Moses has heard from God. God said, hey, I got promised land for you. It's going to be awesome. Moses, like, he sends 10 spies. He's saying, hey, go check out the land. Bring back some produce from the land. Give us a report. Like, are, are there, there, there walled cities? Like, we'll be able to defeat them easily. Are there people living there? Are there inhabitants? Let us know what's going on. 
And so they go and the 10, 10 or 12 spies go, uh, 10 come back with a negative report, two come back with a positive one. Joseph, uh, uh, Joseph and uh, uh, Caleb are like, it's awesome. If God's for us, who can be against us? But one dude's like, no, they're big, bro. <laughs> like there's giants there. Like, yes, it's awesome. Yes, it looks great but I don't think we can do it. Next thing you know, all 10 of them are complaining. Before you know it, the whole community is complaining. I mean, complaining spreads. Lack of faith from one individual will trickle out and, and inhabit the whole camp. That's what's taking place here. They're literally complaining at every turn. And God says, how long am I gonna put up with this wicked grumbling community? They're grumbling against me. I have heard their complaints of these grumbling Israelites. Now check this out, this is interesting. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. They're saying, hey, I don't think God can do it. Hey, our enemy's too big. Hey, I think we're gonna die in the desert. And God's like, okay, you said it. I'll do exactly what you said. I'm just, I'm just suggesting be very careful with the words you say. What if God will do the very things he heard you say about your marriage? What if God will do the very things he heard you say about your kids? What if God would do the very thing he heard you say about that situation that you're wrestling through? Be very careful what you say. So he said, hey, I'll do the very thing I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old uh, or more who was counted in the census, who did what? They gr you grumbled, you complained against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. We begin to get the picture like God's not super excited about complaining. Numbers 1611. Here's God. He says, hey, it's against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Aaron's like, hey, you're not mad at me. Hey, you're banding against the Lord. And how's that going to work out for you? He's like, I'm just doing what God told me to do. I didn't come up with the structure. I didn't come up with this idea. He's like, I didn't raise my hand and say, I want to be high priest. He said, no, like, like it's against the Lord that you're, you're grumbling. Number 17, five, God says, I'll rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. He's talking to Moses. He's saying, hey, I've heard what they said and, and it, it bothers me more than it bothers you. And I'm a I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to rid myself of the constant grumbling of these Israelites. Now let's jump to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 10 through 11. Paul writes this. He said, hey, here's why this happened. Everything that you just saw in this Old Testament nerve, here's the point of all that. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. Paul saying, hey, you remember what took place in the Exodus? You remember how they responded? You remember how they behaved? You remember their attitude? You remember their posture before the Lord? Don't do that. The, those things happened to them so that Central Christian Church would take this as a warning to us. Like we've inherited salvation. We've inherited the benefits and the blessings of knowing Christ. This happened for us as warnings to us. Some of you might be thinking, well, what do I do when something's really wrong, though? <laughs> like, where do I go with that? Uh, you know, hey, obviously, if something's immoral, if something's unethical, it needs to be addressed. Like, we're not saying don't say anything about those scenarios. But what I am saying is where you go with that information is crucial. That's where it becomes complaining or that's where it becomes constructive. 
Uh, two things I would encourage you to do. If you, you're like, hey, I, something's really wrong. Uh, here, here's what, one, first thing I would encourage you to do is pray. Oswald uh, Chambers says, God never gives you discernment so you can criticize, but so that we can intercede. Like God speaks to his people and maybe he'll speak to you about someone's life. And rather than going around talking about what's happening in that individual's life, maybe he's just dropped that knowledge in your heart so you could say, God, would you give them strength? God, would you help them persevere? God, would you, would you strengthen this area of their life? That's a very real possibility. The second thing is, man, if, if, if you have a problem with someone, go to that person. That's how it becomes constructive and not critical. That, that's how it becomes constructive and not complaining. But hey, if... if if I have a problem with someone and then I, I go to my group and I'm just like, hey, let me just tell you, here's what I experienced. Man, so-and-so's doing this and man, their marriage this and their work this. And man, I heard them say that, wow, like, can you believe that? And they claim to be a citizen of heaven. Wow, that's wrong. That's wrong. Uh, that grieves the heart of God. And we don't want to grieve the heart of God, right? Like, so, so one thing we say around here is we lead up with truth, we lead out with praise. We lead up with truth. So like if, if I have an issue with an elder or something going on in the church, then I go to the elders with it. Like that's this structure, that, that's what we do. It would be wrong for me to go to you, anyone here other than an elder and be like, hey, the elders, oh my, can you believe this? That's wrong. In the same way, it would be wrong for one of the staff members to bleed out a bunch of information to you or, or for you to go to your group, bleeding out a bunch of information. Listen, go, go to the person that is the problem with the problem. That's how it becomes healthy. Uh, and, and hey, we are imperfect people in progress. I'm an imperfect pastor. This is an imperfect church. So, so because we're made up of imperfect people, right? So we're going to miss it. And when we miss it, talk about it. But talk to the right person about it. That's where it doesn't become complaining. That's where it becomes constructive. And the church is built up whenever that, that happens. Amen. All right, good. Uh, and when you complain, though, let me just say this, too. Uh, there's a book called The No Complaining Rule. It's a brilliant business book. Uh, but one of the suggestions is there's any time you have a complaint, whether it's constructive or, or just critical, you're like, hey, I see this, always bring three solutions. Uh, one thing I tell people, I'm like, well, okay, I, I recognize the problem, but what's the solution? It's, it, perhaps it's a problem that we already know about. <laughs> we just don't have a solution for it. And so, so every time we bring a complaint, let's bring... Bring three solutions. That's, that's super helpful. Okay, back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14. Um, it says, do everything without complaining or arguing. I'm going to close here. Three things real quick I want to give you. If you're taking notes, this is where they begin. You're like, I was wondering if you're ever going to get to your notes. <laughs> I'll go quick, I promise. Here, here's what Paul says. Do everything without complaining or arguing. He gives us three reasons. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you, so for your sake, stop complaining. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. He's saying, hey, first of all, do it, do it for you. Why? Because you're in this process of becoming. And when we complain, when we argue, it, it stops the process. Like we want to become. Like, like I love that word become. Like my name's Tim and I'm still becoming. You know, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And I'm on this journey with you. We're becoming. Paul's saying, hey, for your sake, stop doing it so that it won't hinder your progress in becoming a blameless and pure child of God. That's the, the gist of it there. He says, do it for your sake. When we complain, it, it, it hinders, hinders our progress. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Why? So that you may become. Some of you might feel like you're not, not growing in God like maybe you were uh, maybe you're not growing in God like you want to. 
I guess the question would be, have you become critical about life? Have you become critical about, about the church? Have you become critical about an individual? If you have, it will hinder your growth. It will hinder your progress. Because now rather than uh, coming and, and maybe receiving from the Lord what, what that person might say to you or, or what an individual might talk about, now it's through this lens of criticism. Everything's wrong. And Paul's just saying, for your own sake, like, like stop doing it because it's going to hinder you from becoming who God wants you to be. Second thing he says, stop complaining for the sake of others. Uh, verse 15 through 16, he says, he says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Check this out, crooked. Uh, we live in a crooked and depraved generation. That word crooked is, is scolios. We get our English word scoliosis from it. Maybe you've heard of someone who has scoliosis in their back. Uh, their back's crooked. Their back's not in alignment. Their back's out of whack. He, he's talking, he said, hey, you live in a generation that's left, left the path of God and they're on a crooked path. Like the they're, 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 they're journey they're on is very bent and twisted and they think it'll bring them life, but it actually leads to their captivity. If they would stay on like God's path, it would lead to an abundant life. But you live in a generation that is crooked and it's, it's depraved. Depraved of what? Depraved of God's presence, depraved of God's favor, depraved of God's blessing. And he's saying that's the generation you live in, but you, you shine. Like, like whenever you go to a jeweler and you're picking out like a, a diamond, I remember whenever I was trying to buy Tiffany's wedding ring, I would go to the jeweler, first time ever doing that. They, they would lay this black backdrop and they would lay out these diamonds and say, hey, which one do you want? This one, oh, let me tell you about the cut. Let me tell you about the color. Let me tell you about the clarity. I'm like, those words need, need nothing to me. <laughs> but they put it on a, back, a black backdrop. Why? So it pops, so it, it shines more. He's saying, hey, you, your backdrop that you're living in is very dark. Like, like, you live in the most dark, crooked, depraved pocket of America. Welcome to the mission field. Paul's saying, you shine. Don't complain about the crooked and depraved generation. We know they're crooked and depraved. You shine. You take a stand. How do you shine? With your words, with your attitude. Think the way Jesus thought, the way you serve people, the way, the way you posture yourself. That it's not about my position. I'm just here as a servant. What can I do for you today? You shine in those moments. Paul's saying, hey, don't complain or are you because it, it stops you from shining. It, it, you, you stop shining as you hold out the word of life. Like Paul's saying, hey, I know your mission. You, you, you're a citizen of heaven. Therefore, like your focus is to help people find and follow Jesus. And I'm just saying, if you don't stop complaining for your own sake, do it for the sake of your mission. Like how many of you enjoy being around people that complain all the time? How many of you know someone that complains all the time? Like don't elbow or point to anybody. <laughs> but it's exhausting. Like it sucks the life out of you, right? Listen. If we feel that way, how much more does a crooked and depraved generation feel that way? And hey, on one hand, you're talking about goodness of God and he's my provider. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. But let me tell you about my wife. Whew. Listen, Paul's saying that hinders your witness. So, so stop for your sake. Stop for the sake of others so that the word of life will take life in them. Third thing he says well, let me back up. <laughs> Paul knows life's tough, right? And so, like, let's be square. Like, Paul's writing this from a 
a Roman jail cell. Like he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. So Paul's not saying life's all roses. Let's ignore the hard stuff. No, he, he recognizes that. He, he recognizes life gets lumpy. But, but what he's saying is you can focus on all that's wrong or you can focus on all that's right. And that's your choice. He's saying as citizens of heaven, we focus on the good. We focus on the sunny side. That's why he says this in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, marinate on that. Talk about that. Let your mind be filled with that. Listen, a crooked and depraved generation, we don't have to point out those things. Like, we know. They know. Not you. Let your mind rest here on what's right, noble, good. The way you think will ultimately dictate the way you talk, will ultimately result in the joy you experience, the joy that's missing in your life. Paul's saying you shine like stars in the universe. Stop complaining for your sake. Stop complaining for the sake of others. And third, stop complaining for the sake of your pastor. Now, I don't write the Bible. I'm just here to teach it. And so I realize this sounds super self-serving. But look at what Paul says. He says, stop complaining and arguing. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become, so that others will experience God's grace. Stop complaining or arguing in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. He's saying, do, do it for nothing else. Would you do it for me so that I know I'm not wasting my time? Paul knows this. Paul knows there's coming a day when he's going to give an account. And Paul doesn't want in that moment for the Lord to look at his life and, and examine the span of his ministry and say, wow, Paul, you really crushed it in Rome. Like, good job. I saw what you did there. That's a great church. Paul, wow, the Corinthians, they were a mess. Good job. Like they straightened them out. But Paul, what happened in Philippi? Like, gosh, they couldn't walk in unity. Paul, why didn't you teach them? Paul, they couldn't live as citizens of heaven on earth. Why didn't you, why didn't you tell them how to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Paul, why, did, why didn't you tell them? Why didn't you lead them? Why didn't you get them there? Paul said, I don't want to come to the end of my life and just know like I ran my race for, for nothing. Listen, there's coming a day when you will give an account for your life, where you'll stand before God and he'll examine your work. He, as citizens of heaven, there'll be a judgment, not for heaven and hell, but a judgment seat for rewards. And he'll judge your life on two things. I believe this. He'll judge your life saying, first off, what'd you do with my son? Like in light of all Jesus did for you, what'd you do for him? Who, who's here? Who's a citizen of heaven because of your citizenship? Who'd you help find Jesus? Who'd you help follow Jesus? I believe we're going to give an account, all of us, for that. Second thing I think he's going to examine your life on is what'd you do with the time, the talent, and the treasures I entrusted to you? I gave you gifts. I gave you abilities. I let you live in the darkest place on earth. Like, you, shot, you were shining so bright. But who'd you draw to the light? Paul knows that. But Paul also knows for himself, he'll be judged more strictly than all of that. 
James would write this in, in James 1.3. We talked about it in our study throughout James. He says, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why? Because we who teach will be judged more strictly. Listen, this, this keeps me awake at night sometimes. Not only am I going to give an account for my life, but I'm going to give an account for you. Did I, did I rightly divide the word? I hope so. Did, did I use this platform just to air my opinions or I just say, no, here's what the Bible says about citizenship in heaven and I'm just challenging you to do it. Did I challenge you? Did I just tell you what you wanted to hear? I'll give an account. Paul's saying, I'm gonna give an account. So if you don't, if you don't stop complaining or arguing for your sake, if you don't stop complaining or arguing for the sake of others, would you stop complaining and arguing for me? Would you apply God's word to your life for me? Would you, would you help me to know that I'm not wasting my time? I'm not running my race for nothing. In closing, I challenge you this week to take an audit of your thoughts, take an audit of your words. I invite you to invite some other people into that process, maybe a spouse, a friend, and invite them, say, say this, hey, I realize that complaining is a very serious deal to God. And so I, I'm trying to do everything without complaining or arguing. So if you hear me complain, can you just bring it to my attention? And every time you start to complain in your life, let that be an alarm clock to remind you to recalibrate to the goodness, the grace, the mercy of God. Listen, the Bible says God is good and he does good. When we complain, we're just highlighting we're focused on the wrong thing. So let our complaints be our alarm clock to recalibrate back to the goodness of God. Talk about those things. Think about those things. Because that accurately reflects a citizen under the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. That accurately represents his kingdom. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Why? Because that's how we conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven here on earth. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your word. God, today I pray you would empower your church to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. God, that we be people who do everything without complaining or arguing so that we can shine. We might become who you created us to be. God, would you empower us? Would you do a deep work in us, Father, so that we can accurately represent you, who you are, and the joy that we have as living as your kids. God, we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen.